This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, we are continuing in our series. This is week four of five. And we've been talking about the five solas. And we've talked about the fact that there's been a lot of diversity that came out of the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. But there also was this common tradition that was birthed from this movement. And scholars in the 20th century looked back and identified this common tradition as the five solas. And sola, as we said, is a Latin word for alone. And so what the reformers were saying is that it's in these five things alone that the Bible teaches we find salvation and we find our highest authority and we find our greatest hope. And so this morning we've come to solus Christus, which means Christ alone. And the most central insight to Solus Christus is twofold. First, there is an exclusive identity to who Jesus is. So Jesus is exclusive, and there's something about him that's unique. And that because of this identity, the work that Jesus accomplished is all-sufficient. So those are really the two main insights. And really, it was one insight, two-pronged that Jesus is exclusive in his identity, and because of that, all of his work that he has done is all-sufficient. Nothing needs to be added to this work. Now, uh, this idea of exclusivity uh, in our day and age, in some respects, we understand it. In other respects, we don't like it, right? I mean, if you talk about it in the the one respect we tend to be okay with, You talk about, for example, that ABC has the exclusive rights to show the NBA Finals. We're like, eh, whatever, I guess I'll just turn to ABC, no big deal. I don't feel constrained by that. If you say, well, NBC 
has the exclusive rights to the Summer Olympics. You think, ah, no big deal. Just turn to NBC and watch the Summer Olympics. But if you say that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, you say, I'm not okay with that. Maybe you, some people would say, that's more than exclusive. That's intolerant, right? And in fact, this is, this is such a common objection in our culture, in our day and age, uh, that Tim Keller's book, with New York Times bestselling book, Reason for God, out of all of the uh, arguments that he talked about in that book, based in his ministry in Manhattan over the last 20 plus years, the very first chapter was on this question, how can there be only one way? And he talks about, among many other things in that chapter, that he was on a panel in New York City with a Muslim cleric and a Jewish rabbi and himself. And the point of this panel was to discuss the differences between their respective religions. And it became clear to everyone who was there that the, the Jewish uh, man, uh, the Christian minister, and the Muslim cleric all believed that their answer was exclusive. And so then someone came during the Q&A to the microphone and said, it's because of people like you that there will never be world peace. There will never be world peace as long as leaders in these faith communities don't finally come to understand that no one has the answer. And if no one alone has the answer, and if there is a God, then all ways would lead to him. And so among other helpful things that Tim Keller says in this chapter, he points out that that actually might be one of the most exclusive and hypocritical things that this person could have said. Because essentially what this person is saying is, uh, I don't care what your view of God is, you think it's exclusive, but my view is that all religions must lead to the same God. But you see, that in and of itself is exclusive. That is an exclusive claim. It's saying, your exclusive claim is intolerant. Mine is okay. Now, he goes on. It's a helpful chapter. If that's something that you're confused by, that is to say, the exclusivity of Jesus, something you want to learn more about, that's a great resource, and I could point others to you. But this morning, what I want to do now is I want to talk about one area, at least, that I think all of us still accept, see as beautiful, see as right, exclusivity. That is to say, what is an area that all of us would say exclusivity is right in that context? And I think it would be marriage. I think uh, when I, this summer, in just a few weeks, will uh, do another wedding, that is to say, I won't get married again. <laughs> uh, I won't, I'm fine, uh, married to my beautiful wife, Leah, but I will officiate a wedding, right? something that pastors do. And one of the first things I'll say is, why are we here? You are here, I'll be looking at the couple, they'll be facing me, and I'll say, we are here because you're, you are here to declare an exclusive, loyal, and lifelong love. And I think everyone says, that's right. If you get married, that's what it's for. The Bible calls this a covenant, right? It's not a contract. Ideally, and by design, marriage is not a contract, it's a covenant. And that's a big Bible word, so let me say it this way, right? I've heard it said, a covenant is a stunning blend of both law and love. It's a relationship much more intimate and loving than any mere legal contract could ever create. Yet, it's one more enduring and binding than personal affections alone could make. It's a bond of love made more intimate and solid because it's legal. It's the very opposite of a consumer-vendor relationship. 
in which the connection is maintained only if it serves both parties' self-interest. So a covenant, by contrast, is a solemn, permanent, whole, self-giving of two parties to each other, which is why a covenant is the most risky thing you can enter into. A covenant of marriage is the most risky thing because you don't give 50% and the other person gives 50%. You give 100% no matter what the other person gives. That's the idea of a covenant. And the reason this is important when we talk about exclusivity is because to talk about Jesus being the exclusive way, we have to understand that breaking of a covenant is exactly what happened. You see, God created humanity. And we were in covenant relationship with him. An exclusive, loyal commitment. And the first humans rebelled. And in rebelling, that covenant was broken. And so, the only way that human beings can be reconciled to God, to become the human beings we are created to be, no sickness, no death, right, no rebellion, is to be restored to this covenant relationship. But you realize, when you breach relationship, reconciliation can only be brought about by the party that was offended, right? So, therefore, God, if we are to be reconciled to him, must come to us. That's the only way it could happen. And so, we talked last week about grace alone, and what we said was that God's response to sin and rebellion was grace. When rebellion happens in the garden at the very beginning of the Bible, how is God going to respond? Because that might be one of the most important questions. How is God going to respond? Well, we see in the Bible that he responds with grace. And so key to understanding why Jesus is the exclusive way of redemption is because we were in a covenant relationship with God. And we rebelled and it was broken. And so God has pursued us in Jesus Christ to restore us to that relationship. And we understand that. Exclusivity in relationship is something we value, and it's something we value rightly. And so, like I said at the very beginning, the two central insights, or I guess the one twofold central insight, to Christ alone is Jesus' exclusive identity and his sufficient work. So the question then is, how would we rightly profess this doctrine? We're gonna do this, and then we're gonna close with, so what? <laughs> I mean, seriously, so what? How are we going to live now? How is this going to affect our everyday life? But first, in order for it to rightly affect our everyday life, we do have to understand it. So what do I mean when Jesus has an exclusive identity? Well, we, we started with Hebrews. There's lots of places that we could have gone, but the text I chose for this morning was the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews establishes uh, these truths of Jesus all throughout the book, his exclusive identity and his all-sufficiency over and over and over. So it's an incredible place to go to. And Hebrews is actually a sermon. That's what this is. That's why at the beginning, it just launches right in. It doesn't say, uh, so-and-so wrote this to so-and-so, uh, hello, like some address, like every other uh, letter in the New Testament. Like I just look to the left, Philemon, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and so on. Most of the letters start like this. Hebrews doesn't. Why? Because Hebrews is a sermon. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. So it starts off by giving one sentence in Greek, and it's a thesis statement for everything else that's going to be talked about. So 
The preacher says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And so here what we see in these verses is that Jesus is both God, he's divine, and he's man. And that's pretty exclusive, right? No other person has ever lived who is both God and man. And in Hebrews, we see that Jesus is son and Lord because he's always been. That's what verse two and three says. And by his work of taking on our humanity and fulfilling the role of those first humans, chapter two, and David, chapter one at the end, and he's the perfect high priest, chapter four through chapter 10, he's secured our redemption and he's brought this promised age to come. So Hebrews places alongside one another this unqualified affirmation that Jesus is God. He's not kind of God. He's not a little bit of God. He's not kind of like God, but a little bit subordinate to God. Jesus is God. So it's unqualified. He is God. In fact, the Arians, which uh, Arianism was a, a heretical movement in the early church, and they said that Jesus was not eternally existent, that Jesus was not equal with God. And in fact, they were, they were so committed to that that when they read just these first four vo- uh, verses in Hebrews, it was enough for them to say Hebrews can't be in the Bible. That's how strong this is, these four verses. I mean, it's unequivocal that Jesus is God. And if you keep reading in Hebrews, it's unequivocal that Jesus is a human, not kind of human, but a human being. So Hebrews places alongside one another this unqualified affirmation of his deity and his humanity. So in chapter seven, Jesus has a heritage. He has grandparents. He's from the tribe of Judah, he says. And he was vulnerable to temptation, just as we are, chapter four, verse 15. And he learned obedience, just as we do, even though he was the son of God. He still had to be made perfect through what he suffered, chapter two, verse 10. And so the reason Jesus must be both God and man is because of this relationship between God and humans that I referred to earlier, right? Remember, if we are to be reconciled to God, only God can do it. But it was our fault. So he has to be God and man. So another way to say it is, because God's perfect nature, it's impossible for him to tolerate sin. So if he's not gonna destroy everything, he has to provide his own solution to this problem of forgiving sin. And because God has determined to spread his image over the earth in this relationship, this covenantal relationship we talked earlier, through humanity, his solution must be a perfectly obedient human. So only God can provide the solution, but yet the solution has to be a perfectly obedient human because that's what went wrong in the first place. And because every human being born after Adam and Eve is not perfect, That human being cannot come from Adam and Eve. Therefore, it must be unique. The identity of this person must be unique. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus has that unique identity. So, it's not that Jesus is merely one way to save us among a number of other possibilities that God could come up with. But who Christ is and what he has done shows us that this is the only way God can redeem us. You see, Jesus is the one who fulfills God's own righteousness as a man. 
he reconciles God himself with humanity. He establishes God's own saving rule and reign in this world because he is the son of God. That's a lot, right? I mean, this is what the Bible teaches, and that's a whole lot. Now, when we talk about the Protestant Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church believed these things. They believed that Jesus has a unique identity. They never denied that Jesus had to be a part of salvation. What they mainly denied was that Jesus' death is all-sufficient, that nothing has to be added to that. So, while in our day and age, we might first have to talk about the exclusivity of Jesus, and is Jesus really the only way, which is what I just tried to do and showed you why I think that not only does it make sense, but also clearly the Bible teaches it and why the Bible teaches it. But then also there's this other pronged insight, right? And that is Jesus is all sufficiency. So assuming that Jesus has this identity that's very unique, God and man, he can fulfill all of this need to be reconciled. Is it, was it enough or is there something else that you have to add in your obedience? And so next here, this all-sufficiency of Christ. Look at, the, look at the passage again. After making purification for sins, this is verse three, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is really important. This idea of sitting down. When do you sit down? You sit down when your work is complete. And so Jesus, after making purification for sins, didn't move aside and wait for his next assignment. No, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why? Because it was complete. It was finished. All-encompassing. Everything was complete in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to bring man back together. That's why I added chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, because there it says that Jesus isn't just the founder of our faith. He didn't just get the ball rolling, right? So I just get the ball rolling, you believe in me, and then you do some good stuff, and you keep doing some good stuff, and maybe God won't kick you out of the family. No, he's not just the founder, he's also the perfecter of our faith. And so he sees it all the way through to the end. You know, Martin Luther, uh, he was a very uh, distressed man uh, early on. I mean, very, very distressed. So he, he, was, he believed that God was constantly angry at him. Uh, later on in his life, even after uh, the Reformation, he suffered from ulcers because he had so much anxiety over God's hatred for him before he discovered God's mercy and grace. And one of his mentors early on when he was a monk saw something in Martin Luther and sent him to go study theology. And Martin Luther didn't understand why. But through years and years of studying theology and then teaching it in the university, he discovers God's grace. Well, we all know that in just proclaiming God's grace, the world was turned upside down. And that's not an overstatement. The world is different today because of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. History was changed there. Whether we believe Christianity or not, it's historically true that things changed there. And so it's not too much to say that he turned the world upside down. So this mentor that sent Luther to do this, right? It's not like he could Skype him, FaceTime him, text him, call him up. They were writing letters back and forth. And he's, he's just sure, right? He didn't have 24-hour news cycle. So he's just cer certainly somebody's getting something wrong. Well, I guess even if he did have a 24-hour news cycle, it doesn't mean that he would be certain, but it doesn't matter. So 
basically, he was writing a letter trying to clarify, no, Martin, certainly you wouldn't be turning the world upside down. Certainly this is a misunderstanding. So he asked, please simply tell me what you're teaching. What do you believe? And this is what Martin Luther said. Quote, I teach that people should put their trust in nothing but Jesus Christ alone. Not in their prayers, merits, or their own good deeds. End quote. It was that sentence that was turning the world upside down. You see, truly, in Christ alone, our needs are met completely and perfectly. Our need for truth is found in him as the final prophet and revelation of God. That's what we just read. Our need for a righteous standing before God is achieved by Jesus as our priestly representative and substitute. He took our place. You see, he lived the life we should have lived and then he died the death we should have died. It's a substitute. He takes our shame and guilt and death and we get his life and perfection. Our need to have our rebel hearts subdued and our enemies defeated is accomplished by him as our conquering king. So you see, Jesus is unique in his identity and he is all sufficient in what he accomplished. To rightly teach this doctrine that turned the world upside down, Christ alone, we have to hold both of those to be true. Exclusive identity, all sufficient work because of that exclusive identity. Now what I wanna spend the rest of the time on is, so what? Right, how, how would we live this? How would we practice this? And I just want to talk about one thing, okay? To practice solus Christus or Christ alone is to passionately pursue Jesus as all-sufficient in all of life. I think some of us treat Jesus as sufficient in some area of our life, but not all areas of our life, right? It's like we create our life into two different realms, right? Like for maybe for our fourth and fifth graders right here in the first row, it's like, uh, so Jesus is a church thing, and then all of my friends at school like, I got to do cool things so that they think I'm cool, right? So I believe in Jesus over here when I'm at church and when I'm talking to my parents about Jesus. But does what Jesus, what he's done for you, does that matter at school and with your friends and in your obedience to your parents? Does that matter? Right? For the rest of us, we do the same thing. I mean, it's like same thing, same day, different stuff. Right? Whether we're fourth, fifth grade or 50. We, we compartmentalize Jesus, like, yeah, he forgave my sins, thank you for that, but I'll take it from here. Appreciate that. Very kind of you, Jesus. I heard one time a preacher talk about a life-changing illustration that he received from a Bible teacher in Colorado on a retreat one time, and he says this. Uh, this woman was teaching the Bible, and she said, if the distance between the earth and the sun, which is 92 million miles, by the way, in case you were wondering, what is the distance between the earth and the sun? 92 million miles. And if the distance between the earth and the sun was reduced to the thickness of a sheet of paper. So take your, uh, take your worship folder and just look at that. that. That's the thickness of a sheet of paper. If not the width or the height, the, the thickness, okay? If 92 million miles was made equivalent to that piece of paper, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. And the diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of paper 
310 miles high. By the way, uh, the galaxy is nothing but a speck of dust in the whole universe. Just in case you forgot seventh grade science, uh, there's a difference between the galaxy and the universe. The universe is the big thing, and then there are multiple galaxies. And a galaxy would be that big, 310 miles high. And the Bible says yet that Jesus Christ holds the universe together with the word of his power. And then she asked this question, is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? See, we can't just relegate Jesus to certain aspects of our life. Take it from here, Jesus, appreciate that. I got this. The places we see Jesus as not all sufficient are definitely specific to our story and who you are and what season of life you're in. And most of the time, we don't intend to shrink Jesus to a sticky note in our life. But I'm saying that to practice this, to live this out, if we try to say Jesus plus something else is what I need to be okay, to view myself as valuable, then we don't understand the doctrine. We're not living this doctrine, what the Bible teaches. So I wanna run through a few things, okay? If we find our value in sufficiency of Jesus plus work, for example, in order to be valuable, right? For me to be valuable, yes, I need Jesus because he gotta forgive my sins, but I need work. Now, of course, work, don't hear what I'm not saying. Work is crucial. We're created to work. But because of sin, we try to find our value in work. And when we live and die by our performance, we're never able to rest. Some days are great. Some days are horrible. Some days I'm awesome. Some days I'm horrible. And, and if we are living for our performance, we can never rest. You wonder why you can never shut it off. It's because there's always this, this need to prove yourself, maybe to yourself, maybe to others. And that'll lead to bitterness with your workload, no satisfaction, only restlessness. And your work will stop being to serve others, but to use others, to make yourself feel important if your value isn't found in Jesus alone. Well, it could be Jesus plus education, right? You're constantly trying to prove yourself, but never arriving. So my doctoral uh, advisor, my doctoral dissertation advisor told me this story. He said, one of the things that I love in the defense, so at the end of a doctoral program, you write a, a defense. You've been working on this for years, and by doing your research and then writing it up, you're still not done. You still have to go before a panel of faculty members and defend your ideas to people. Well, he said, my favorite thing to do in those is to watch it happen, because in that defense, I know that I am watching the expert in the world on this one thing. Now, not in your whole field, but on this one thing in your field. And you're the expert in the world for about 10 minutes. You see, if, you, if I don't view it that way, first of all, I'd be silly. And second of all, it could be crushing. But if I'm living to prove myself through it, I can never arrive. And it might not be a program for you. You might just want to be perceived as someone who knows things. Someone who always has the right answers. And so rather than learning being something for curiosity in order to help and serve other people, it becomes about you because you need it in order to feel valuable. Or what about status? Right? I think status is huge, obviously. And we're not immune to this. I mean, if, if our... If our value is found in, yes, Jesus over here, but status, then we will 
always be discontent. And we will become incapable of being grateful for anything because you're always needing more. You're always wanting more. So we'll think things like this, right? At this point in my life, I should be somewhere else. I'm embarrassed by where I am at this point in my life. I look at Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or my friends and I think, this is embarrassing. I should have my stuff more together than this. At this point in life, I should have accomplished more. And that's where you'll go. Or parenting, right? If it's Jesus plus my performance in parenting, you will crush your children with your expectations because you'll need them to make you feel good about yourself. Instead of cultivating in them the resilience that's in them, cultivating in them who God has made them to be. And then when they do something wrong, your primary emotion won't be anger, it'll be compassion. Have you experienced this? That's how God feels towards his children more than anything else when we sin is compassion. Because he sees how it destroys us. But if we need our kids to perform in order to make us, make us feel good, we'll be totally distraught when we fail. And our value will be found in their success. And our devastation will be found in their failure. So these are some examples. But the point is not to be flippant with some religious phrase, right? Some of these things matter, right? I want us to be fulfilled in work and do great work. I want us to be great parents. I want us to be fantastic learners. I want us to have amazing relationships. But what I'm saying is that if we don't find our value in who Jesus says we are, then all of those things will be distorted because we'll need them for our value instead of responding to those things out of gratefulness. And the reason this is true is because you were made for all these things. You were made, you're valuable because you're an image bearer of God. You were given amazing dignity and it is affected by the fall. And yet, while you were still an enemy of God, he pursued us. Because, get this, it's even better. He didn't need us. That would be okay. But it's even better than that. He wanted us. That's why he pursued us. And so, we were made for this. Our deepest longings will only be met by knowing God. And when we know God, in true relationship, we will be known by him. There's nothing more deep than our need to know God and be known by him. And there's something so, uh, there's a fear that uh, is so deep in us, almost equally as deep as this need that we need to continue to hear who we are over and over and over. And so I had a friend who, like Leah and I, when we talk to our children, especially when we discipline them, we start by speaking identity into their life. So um, my friend, when his child, his son, would disobey, 
he would say, I love you and you're my child. That's why it is not okay for you to disobey me. Right, so it wasn't this, if you're good, then I'll love you more. It was, the reason it's not okay is because I love you and you're my child and I want what's best for you. Therefore, don't disobey me. And that's the logic of the gospel. But, but this thing in us runs so deep. That is to say, this orphan spirit, this if God knew me or if anyone else knew me truly, they wouldn't want me anymore. They wouldn't love me. So one time, after years of this, his son is about eight years old at this time, after years and years of speaking this into his child and his children, I love you, you're my son, therefore obey me. I want what's best for you. There was a time when uh, his son was out in the backyard um, doing something he absolutely knew he shouldn't have been doing, was told he shouldn't do before, and this time it actually broke the fence in the backyard. So it, it broke this whole section in the fence, and my friend went out, and he, he got down on a knee to his son who was weeping in shame, and his son interrupted him, and he said, Dad, I know what you're gonna say. And in that moment, he thought, yes, he gets it. He knows that I love him, and he knows that even though I'm disappointed that he disobeyed me, that he doesn't have to be afraid that I don't love him anymore. And so he's, he says, son, what am I gonna say? And he said, you're gonna say you don't love me anymore and I'm not your son anymore and you hate me. After years of trying to catechize his son and knowing be, I, because you are my son, that's why I expect you to obey me. And we get this, we know this. And we do that all the time to God, don't we? We say, this time, he's not gonna forgive me. This time, I'm not his child. This time, he doesn't love me. But you see, when we understand the gospel, it's Jesus Christ's obedience on our behalf. That record has been given to us. And so we never have to doubt if God loves us. Because does he love Jesus, his perfect son? The answer is yes. And because we're in Jesus, and Jesus' blood covers us, then he loves us. And so, but this, because it doesn't come natural to us, even after we're born again in the spirit, we have to continue to pursue him like any other relationship. We have to get to know him because when we get to know him, that's when we'll come to him with these areas where we don't feel sufficient and we'll say, I don't believe you're sufficient here. I feel like I need more, but I want you to show me that you're sufficient. And when we do that over and over and over and come to him in prayer and come to him in distress and come to him in fear and we get to know him more, we'll, we'll see him more and more as sufficient. We'll experience him more and more as sufficient. And, and we see this in chapter two, verse one and two. I'll just read it. You don't have it in your folder. It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, what we've heard is everything in chapter one, who Jesus is, what he's done, his unique identity, his, um, his uh, all-sufficiency. That's what we've heard. And then there's this very, very emphatic language of, therefore, he could have just said, therefore, we, we need to pay more attention. But he says, we must pay much closer attention. The way you could translate those two separate words is you could say this must, he could say, therefore, beyond Anything that you can measure, you could translate it that way. Pay 
much closer attention. This word for much could be devoted to or even can be translated obsessed. So you could say, therefore, beyond what we can even comprehend, we must be obsessed with what we heard, lest we drift away from it. Not rebel, but drift. Different imagery. So the way to not drift is to pursue, it's to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so you could say it this way, as I've heard it said, divine love triumphs over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. You see, the cross was an act simultaneously of punishment and amnesty, of severity and grace, of justice and mercy. And given the fact of Jesus' unique divine human identity, his work is enough. No debt is left unpaid, and we receive him through faith alone, by grace alone, and next week we'll see to the glory of God alone. And, and this idea of the more we come to Jesus with our feelings of inadequacy and let him be sufficient for us and feel that and experience that, it reminds me of, the, uh, of a scene at the end, towards the end, in Prince Caspian, uh, the Narnia book. It's in the movie too, but it's a little different. What you have in Prince Caspian is that the children are brought back to Narnia as kings and queens to help save Narnia. And towards the end, Lucy, the little girl, finally sees Aslan. And she's been waiting the whole time to see him. She thinks she sees him, and everyone else tells her she's silly, so she doesn't pursue him. But at the end, she finally sees him. And her and Aslan, who is the Christ figure in the Narnia books, they're having this conversation. And she apologizes for not pursuing him, even though everyone else told her that he wasn't there. She knew he was there. And he asks her, why didn't you pursue me? And right after they talked about that, she's laying in between his paws. And she notices how big his paws are. And she says, Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one. He answered her. Not because you're older? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. You see, that is how we continue to grow in our experience of Jesus' all-sufficiency. To practice Christ alone is to passionately pursue Jesus as all-sufficient. And just like Lucy's experience, he won't get bigger, but we will. And every year, every day, every moment, every experience where we see him as bigger, it's because we will have gotten bigger. He is the perfecter of your faith. He will see it to the end. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> we are grateful that we have a sure eternal comfort in Jesus. We're so grateful that you valued us and you purchased us. And so now eternal life begins now. The evil one comes to steal and kill and destroy, but you have come to give us abundant life. And so often we don't believe that. And so we live our life as though this weren't true, but it is. And so we long for our response to be growth and fullness in you. 
ask you to change us, continue to change us. In Jesus' name.